we're going to be in our Bibles in Philippians chapter number 4. So if you want, you can start heading that way. Philippians chapter number 4. At uh, 6.44 p.m., it was a normal Friday night at the Morris household. And then Raina threw up. And uh, no, no parent really enjoys that messier side of parenting, but that's no big deal, right? It's just, you know, we were having a nice family time. We'd just eaten supper, kind of winding down for our Friday. We're going to do some reading on the couch together. And uh, it wasn't until about an hour later that Raina informed us that there was a reason she had thrown up. And the reason was that she had swallowed a quarter. So uh, I decided that a quarter seemed a little large, and so I did like a money lineup. You know how like the police, the police line up to pick the suspect? So I, I did penny, dime, nickel, and I showed it to her, and, and she pointed right at the nickel right away. And so, oh, nickel. I thought, well, I'll add a quarter. So I did penny, dime, nickel, quarter, and she points to the quarter. And I decided she's just picking the biggest one every time because a quarter's a little bit large. And so, you know, Kathy and I looked at each other and we thought, mm, what to do? So we did what every good parent does. We turned to that trusty, reliable source um, of Google. And, uh, and we said, what do you do when your child's small as a coin? And uh, we read all kinds of stuff. We read about parents that raced their kids to the ER. Um, we read about parents who did absolutely nothing and just waited to see what would happen. And uh, all kinds of things in between. And, uh, and so in the end, we decided that we should probably go ahead and take Raina in. And uh, at the first of the two ERs that we ended up visiting, um, we found ourselves looking at something. And, uh, and that's what we found ourselves looking at on, on Friday night. So um, how do you respond when you're driving your child to the ER and you're concerned that they might have something lodged in their throat? Or how do you react when you see an x-ray that looks something like, like that? How do, you, how do you feel when about 14 long hours later, they wheel your precious little gown daughter into a room for what they call a simple procedure? Because the reality is that anxiety or worry is often our natural reaction to the circumstances of life and the difficulties of life. And this might have been ours this weekend, but you all came here this morning with your own reasons to worry. And so I wonder if you had an opportunity to put up a picture, if you could add to this slideshow your own picture, what would you add? What would your picture look like? Uh, your picture might be just a big old money sign, right? It's just, just big dollars. And maybe your bills or the lack of a job or a mortgage that's starting to become unbearable, maybe that's what's driving your anxiety and your worry. Uh, maybe your picture would also be a medical one, Maybe it would be your fear as you wait for test results to come back, and it's driving you to anxiety and to worry. Uh, maybe it would be a picture of one of your children, and it would be a picture of a child that maybe you have a sick child, or maybe you have one who's not walking with the Lord, and you're anxious about it. You're worried about it. Maybe if you could add to my, my slideshow, um, I don't really think you could have a more impressive slide than that one, but you could try, I guess. Um, maybe yours would be a map of the, of the United States, because what's driving your anxiety and your fear is the direction that our country seems to be going, or, or what do you think about its future or its condition? And maybe you're anxious about any number of other things. Maybe you're anxious about, about plane rides or sharing the gospel or your crops or on and on we could go saying these are things that are causing me to have anxiety or fear. Life gives us all kinds of opportunities to have anxiety and to fear. 
So what does God's word tell us about how we should deal with our anxiety and our fear? What message do we need to hear when it comes to handling our worry? Philippians 4, 6 to 7 is going to have that message for us this morning. And it's going to teach us that God's peace is greater than our worry. God's peace is greater than our worry. And so we should pray. Our, our adventurous uh, Friday and Saturday at Children's Hospital ended up with Raina. Um, she's fine. Um, she has a, a shiny 1993 quarter in her hands now. Um, but that's not going to be our last chance to worry, probably for her or for lots of other things. And Paul wrote the book of Philippians to people that are just like us. They're tempted to worry, and they have a whole bunch of circumstances in their lives that cause them to be anxious. And this is his message to them and our message today. God's peace is greater than our worry. So let's read Philippians 4. I'm going to start in verse number 1 just so we get some of the flow of it. Philippians 4.1. Paul is coming to the conclusion of his letter um, to the church at Philippi, and he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray, even as we turn our attention to this passage. Heavenly Father, we come to you now aware that we need your Holy Spirit's help. I need his help. Those gathered here need his help to understand this passage, to believe it, and then to go from here obeying it, being more than just hearers who forget, but doers who act. So please, will you help us right now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The whole book of Philippians is a uniquely relational book from the Apostle Paul. Um, A lot of people would summarize the theme of Philippians as maybe being joy. And yet I, I think the book of Philippians has a unique component in it from Paul, and that is it's not just joy, but it's actually joy in gospel relationships. So from the very beginning of the book, Paul has not just been talking about joy in general, but joy that's caused by and through other people. So if we were to look back even into chapter 1, when Paul greets them and he says, Grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And that sets the tone for this whole letter of Paul having joy and having rejoicing and encouraging joy in one another and through one another. And although he mentions joy a lot, that joy is always connected to community or, or to other people. So in Philippians 1.18, Paul is, he says, I will rejoice, and he does it for a reason. He knows that the prayers of the Philippians will lead to his rescue. See, even there, his joy is connected to the Philippians' activity of praying for him. There's joy in gospel relationship. There's, there's joy in unity in, in chapter 2, verse number 17. He says that he wants all the Philippians to be glad and rejoice with him. See, this joy is not a solo joy. This joy is something that happens in 
community or with one another. He even says to receive Epaphroditus with joy. He calls the Philippians in chapter 4. He says, you are my joy and you are my crown. And yet, there are threats to that kind of joy that Paul addresses throughout Philippians. There are doctrinal threats to that joy, and he has to warn them. Um, There are practical threats to that joy, and there are personal threats to that kind of joy. In fact, we even read the beginning of of chapter 4 of two ladies that were fighting with one another, and he urges both of them to agree and be of the same mind. Um, Because at the bottom of it, these relationships were were fighting against the joy that ought to mark the Philippian church, and they were causing the exact kind of anxiety and worrying that Paul goes on to address. And that same thing can be true for us. So many times, it's the relationships in our lives that drive our worry. It's, it's, the, it's the daughter we love. It's, it's the wife that we care for. It's, it's the neighbor that we're fighting with. And, we, and we're driven to worry and anxiety because of those relationships. And yet, God has commands for us in Philippians 4 about our worry. So we're going we're gonna to look, first of all, at God's commands about our worry. Two simple commands. The first is don't. All right, that's God's first command this morning. Don't. So look down in, in verse number six. Do not be anxious about anything. That's a simple command. Uh, it's a lot easier to read than it is to obey. Stop being anxious. Um, that When he says, do not be anxious about anything, um, in those words is the idea itself. The Philippians already were anxious. And so it's not just don't be anxious in the future. He's saying you already are anxious. You already are worked up, and and you need to stop. You need to end that activity of worrying. He says don't. That word anxious, it's not inherently a sinful word in and of itself. It's used other places, even in the New Testament, just for being concerned about someone. And yet in this case, this is clearly the sinful kind of anxiety that starts to dominate our thinking. That starts to that we start to believe that that life circumstances are out of God's control or they're outside of His goodness, and we begin to take on really kind of our own version of, of God's sovereignty, and we say this is a circumstance that I want to I want to control as I as I think about it, and, and I and I wish I could shape it, and and all I do is think about it, and I, I'm just worrying is kind of the flip side of meditating, really, right? So um, I say that anyone who's a good worrier should also be able to be a good meditator on Scripture because a worrier has this ability. He can look at a circumstance of life, and he can see every, like, bad outcome that could possibly happen out of one circumstance. They can see way down the road things that never might happen or never will happen, yet can see all of the potential disasters that are ahead. Just like someone who really meditates on Scripture ought to be able to look at it and see all the angles and and dwell deeply on it. That's a worrier. That's this kind of anxiety. It's a sinful, selfish kind of thinking that just over and over in your mind, you go through all the possibilities, all the outcomes, and, and you do that apart from God, as if God wasn't even part of the equation. An anxious person, a worrier, thinks about life only apart from the promises or the goodness of God. That's this kind of anxiety. It is an unreasonable anxiety. It brings distraction to thoughts and to actions. And so God has a command about this worry, and his command is don't. Now, the reality is that if the present is all there is, or if the present is totally uncertain, then we're going to be marked by fear and anxiety. If we try to think about our lives apart from the promises and the goodness of God, of course we're going to be anxious. That That's a perfectly natural thing. Anxiety is a perfectly natural reaction to the circumstances of life. It's just a reaction that doesn't factor in 
the character and the goodness of God. So anxiety is a response in our lives to its circumstances apart from God. And God says, you need to not. You need to, don't worry. Do not be anxious. And he has a sharp contrast. He says, don't be anxious. And then he adds, as if that wasn't hard enough, he adds these um, sweet two little words about anything. All right, so just in case you thought there was something that could fly under the radar, something that was allowable for you to have anxiety and care about, I mean, surely it's okay as a parent to have fear over an ER visit, right? Can't I be anxious about that? Can I, can I be perturbed? Can I, can I think that the situation is out of control? God says, no, don't be anxious about anything. There, this command covers everything in your life, whether, whether someone might think that's big or small. And in this room, again, there's represented all kinds of different anxieties or cares. And to some people, your particular care might seem relatively insignificant. Um, even as we were experiencing our emergency room visit, I even thought of other parents who have gone through so much worse than that for than us. You can always compare to somebody else, but the reality is we carry our own anxieties and they're a big deal to us, right? So whether you're a junior hire, whether you are a grandparent, you have anxieties that are unique to you. And yet none of those anxieties are free from this command. None of those get a pass. There, there aren't like more mature anxieties that we say, well, those you're allowed to have. All right? So it's not like if your anxiety is great big, then God says, you know what? That's unreasonable to ask you to not be anxious about that. It's okay to go ahead and be a worrier. Right? Uh, the same thing is true on the small side. Right? The, this doesn't say, you know what? If it's just a little care, then, then go ahead and get worked up about that. No, it says don't be anxious about anything. The, what we would classify as the great big things of life or what you might think of as the little things, God says don't be anxious about those things or, or even stop being anxious about those things. In contrast, though, his second command about our worry, first one is don't. The second is pray instead. Right? It's God's command, pray instead. It says do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the contrast is also an all-encompassing contrast. Just like we are not supposed to worry about anything, we are supposed to pray about everything. All right? The, the antidote, the, the, the correct response to life circumstances is just as encompassing as our command to not worry. In everything, we should be praying. All right? No, no exceptions. We, one commentator said we should be fighting anxious, harassing care with specific petitionary prayer. I like that. We fight our care, we fight it with specific prayer in every circumstance. When, when Paul says that we should do in everything by prayer, he uses a very general word for prayer. Um, it's the most general word that there is, but it's also used um, when it comes to asking. Paul uses it when, it when it comes to interceding for somebody else. He uses this word prayer. So in Romans 1.10, he says that always in his prayers, that's this word, he's been asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And later on in Romans, he, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. All right, there's that general word prayer. It's, it's asking, it's petitioning. Sometimes it's for other people. Um, Paul even says that he remembers people in his prayers. That's this word, all right, general word for prayer. But he follows that with another word about prayer. But in everything by prayer and supplication. 
right? Supplication. There's a word we don't use very often um, unless you're between the age of four, four and 12 and you're with, uh, with our seeds ministry. And then a lot of times we do ACTS as something that helps us think before we pray. I always say, before you pray, what do you do? And the kids will say, stop and, and they'll say, think. We should think before we pray. So the A reminds us adoration and we think things that are wonderful about God. And the C is confession. We remember when we pray that we should be mindful of things we do that are sin. The T is for thanksgiving. And the S, and I get them all to shout that out loud, the S is supplication. All right, so our five-year-olds use this word. Um, maybe they don't know what it, what it means, but uh, they get the idea. It means requesting or asking, and that's the word here. Supplication just means uh, to ask. It's the specific um, petitionary word. It's going to God and saying, will you do this for me? Paul has already used this word earlier in Philippians, Philippians 1.4. We even um, read that, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Two different words for prayer in the same verse, and one of those is this supplication word, right, to ask for somebody else. Um, in Philippians 1.19, Paul had said that I know through your prayers, that through your supplications is the word, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. All right, so this supplication is specifically the asking part. So Paul says, we're commanded not to worry, but instead we should pray. And that prayer should be um, prayer and supplication. And then he adds this to that prayer. That should be a prayer with thanksgiving, a specific kind of prayer. Thanksgiving glorifies God when we pray. And that's why we shouldn't leave it out. Thanksgiving is something that glorifies God. The reality beloved, is that unthankfulness is a mark of the pagan life, right? To be ungrateful is a demonstration that we don't understand the gospel. In Romans 1.21, there's that just scathing chapter on, on those who have rejected God and God would in turn give over. And yet it says this, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or what? They didn't honor him as God and they did not give thanks to him. Right? When you think of Romans 1, maybe you think of the, the, worst of the, the worst of the worst in Romans 1. Romans 1 includes those who are unthankful to God, even though they know who he is. Unthankfulness is a mark of being a pagan, of not, of not being submitted or not believing the gospel. In 2 Timothy 3, there's one of those lists. Um, you know those lists that you get sometimes in the New Testament? They go on and on. They list like all of the bad things that, are, that people are going to be in the future. That's 2 Timothy 3 too. And and it goes through this long description of, of in the last days, perilous times will come, disastrous times. And and what does the Bible mean when it says that people will be evil? It means there'll be things like lovers of self, lovers of money. They'll be proud. They'll be arrogant. They'll be abusive. They'll be disobedient to their parents. They'll be ungrateful, unholy. Ungratefulness is included in this list of things that mark the last days and people that are growing worse and worse. And Paul says when you pray, your prayer should be marked by thankfulness, by thanksgiving. We should be a thankful people. Now, why does Paul tell these people that they should be thankful when they haven't even had an answer yet, right? They're just in the prayer stage. They haven't even even gotten anything yet, and they're supposed to be thankful. Because the reason is that thankfulness is not not just a response after the fact in our prayer right? Or it ought not to be. Thankfulness is actually an attitude that's supposed to inform all of our praying. Why should we be thankful before we've ever had an answer? Well, one, that thankfulness is an expression of faith, right? It means, God, I I am thankful because I believe you're going to answer this prayer the best way possible, right? As opposed to the, I'll wait and see, and if you do what I ask, then I'll be thankful. 
No, this is an expression of faith when we're thankful even ahead of time. It's also an expression of submission. When we're thankful when we pray, when we have our prayers and our supplications, and we're thankful during that prayer, it shows that we are submitted to whatever outcome God gives. God, whatever you do, I will be thankful for what you do. Uh, You are a good, and I'm thankful for you no matter what happens. When I say amen at this prayer, I'm thankful right now. One commentator said, to pray in any other spirit is to clip the wings of prayer. I like that. Our prayer is supposed to be infused by this attitude of thankfulness. And, you know, it's easy to kind of, it's easy for me as a parent uh, so many times just to look to uh, my kids for, for illustrations. You learn, you learn a lot from, from your kids. And I don't know, you who are parents right now, or maybe, maybe you've been a parent, you've had that experience where you thought your child should be a lot more grateful than maybe, maybe they're being. Right? Uh, one of the things we do in our home, we try to have family worship regularly, and at the end of every family worship, we try to say, now, what is one thing you're thankful for? And we're going to pray about that before we go to bed. And, uh, and a lot of times, those are sweet times, and they're, and they're great times, and I like to brag about how those are always great. Um, but that's just not reality, right? Um, not in my house, and I'm thinking probably not in yours either. Um, there are the nights when you say, hey, what are you thankful for? And, uh, and we'll leave Meg out of it. She's a little young, but there's two older kids, and, and they're just staring at me. What, uh, what are we thankful for? Uh, and I'm going, okay, we're, we're in a wonderful air-conditioned house. Um, I took you to Sonic today during happy hour and got slushies. Um, you played in a bounce house yesterday. I mean, what do you mean you don't have anything to be thankful for? Like, all you did today was play, and you don't have anything to be thankful for? Um, we just had Bible time, and you could have been like, you know, I'm so thankful for the depth of the riches of grace in Jesus Christ. But did they say that? No. It's just looking at Dad. You know, I just can't think of anything to be thankful for. Uh, and it's in those moments that I am mindful that so many times that must be how God looks at me when I come to him in prayer, right? So here I am. I'm talking to my father. Have I even thought of how thankful I should be? Or, or have I gone to God over and over in prayer, and, I, and, I've, and I've just tried to rub the little the genie lamp and go, God, I, I, I want something, and then I've moved on and have never been thankful to him, when in reality, he has poured blessing on me. He's heaped it on me, and so I ought to respond with thankfulness. Our prayers ought not just be dominated by request, but thankfulness should run through our prayers and should color them. They should be a part of our praying. Paul says, when you pray, when you have supplication, let it be with thanksgiving. All right? And that's not, that's not saying God doesn't want to hear our request. Look what Paul goes on to say. He says, do it with prayer and supplication. With, have it with thanksgiving, but let your requests be made known to God. Tell him your requests. And, and that word request is used only three times in our whole New Testament, all right? One time is used in Luke 23, and it's used when the crowd is gathered around Pilate and they're asking for Jesus to be crucified. And it says they were urgent, they were demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. That's this word request. It's asking something. It's even asking insistently. A second time this is used is a passage that we finished not long ago in 1 John 5. 1 John 5.15 at the end of the book. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. I hope maybe even some of those sermons that Scott preached on those passages are ringing in, in your head right now. God hears and answers our request. We have the request we have asked of him. He responds to us. That's this word, Request. It's that simple, I'm asking. 
And God says, instead of carrying your worry, instead of carrying your anxiety, you should do something with it. You, sh- you should don't. Don't worry. You should stop. But what you should do is turn that to prayer. In everything, in all those circumstances, pray. Pray with thankfulness, but bring those requests and, and let them be made known to God. There are these three words, and, and I don't think we should strain too hard to find really nifty ways to differentiate differentiate these. There are words that have to do with praying and talking to our Father, whether it's a general word of prayer or of supplication or of asking. The point is, instead of worrying, what we're supposed to be doing is praying. He says that we should pray with thanksgiving and we should let these requests be made known to God. We should make them known even in the presence of God is, is the idea. Being made known to God, say, God, I want you to know this is my request. Right? If if God already knows what those requests are, and he does, why, why should we pray? Have you ever wondered that? You, you realize God knows every word that's on your tongue before you even say it. So if God knows, why does he tell us here that we should pray? I'd just like to give you maybe two different categories to think about. Um, one of the reasons we should pray, even though God knows all things, is for us. Right? There is a benefit for you um, when, when you pray. And one of that is that prayer is an expression of our dependence right? Prayer is your way of saying, God, I rely on you. I'm not going to rely on myself. So this worry that I'm carrying, this anxiety, I'm not just going to keep carrying it on myself. God, I actually depend on you. So I'm going to pray to you. I'm going to expect that you're going to do something about this anxiety or this care. And this kind of praying means that we're going to be humble, right? Instead of of saying, I'm going to buck up. I'm going to shore up. I'm going to carry this on my own. I'm tough enough. It says, God, I'm actually dependent on you. I'm humble because you're great and, and I'm not. So I'm going to rely on you. Prayer is good for us. Prayer gives us the confidence that we can say, I, I obeyed. God said to obey and I did. I prayed. All right? So prayer is good for us. I want you to know, I mean, why would we pray? There's also a component um, when it comes to God. Why would, why would God tell us to pray when he already knows? Um, just a real quick um, thing to think about when it comes to prayer. God is a God who is sovereign, and yet he always uses means, right? God uses ways to accomplish his purposes. So God's sovereignty is not, is not an excuse to not, to not pray. It's not something we go, ah, God's in control. That means I don't pray. No, God uses things to accomplish his plans, all right? God is a God who rescues people from their sin, and yet he expects that his word be preached, right? He uses means. He uses messengers even to, to announce the gospel, right? Same way, God uses prayer as a means to accomplish his ends, right? So prayer is something that um, is for us, and, and it's also a reflection of a God who uses means to accomplish his own ends. So we should pray. We should make those known to God. Not that God didn't know. It's, it's not that we're informing God, and God's like, whoa, I had no idea that you had somebody in the emergency room. No, God knows these things, but he says, I want you to make these requests known. Um, he, he wants us to bring them to him, so what are God's commands when it comes to worry? Don't and pray instead. We're, at a, we're actually at a point of, of danger in this message um, because this actually hasn't been a totally Christian sermon yet. This actually hasn't been a, a, a Christian message because any religion or any philosophy can tell you to do or don't do certain things, right? Any philosophy can tell you don't be a worrier. Right? Any religion can tell you, yeah, just, just be a prayer. What, what we need is actually good news for our worry and for our anxiety. 
Otherwise, we're going to end up minimizing the gospel to something that Jeremy likes to call good advice, right? And the gospel, instead of being liberating news, is just advice for you. Be more moral. Be less of a worrier. Be a happier person. And we're reduced to morality. What we need is gospel hope. And Paul's going to provide that for us. Because the reality is that, that God's peace is greater than our worry. To kind of illustrate what I mean by just good advice when it comes to worry, um, I was thinking as I was getting ready for this message about that great theologian, uh, Bobby McFerrin, uh, who in 1988 um, wrote the first a cappella song to reach uh, number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. All right, 1988, I was nine years old. All right, and he wrote the classic deep theological treatise, Don't Worry, Be Happy. All right, and I don't know if you remember 1988. Uh, or if you remember, don't worry, be happy. Here are some of the deep lyrics that, that Bobby wrote for us. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. In every life, we have some trouble. When you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. And then he went on to list all these reasons that maybe that you're worrying and not being happy. You don't have a place to lay your head. Someone came and they took your bed. Uh, the landlords say your rent is late. Your, yeah, your rent is late. He may have to litigate, but... Don't worry, be happy, he says. Look at me, I'm happy. I give you my phone number. When you worry, call me. I make you happy. Don't worry, be happy. Uh, when you worry, your face will frown, and that will bring everybody down. So don't worry, be happy. All right, you remember that, that great one-hit one wonder? Um, I never heard of Bobby ever again, but that song still sticks in my head, and I heard it as a nine-year-old. Don't worry, be happy. That's good advice that that just passes over all of the sincere, genuine reasons that we have anxiety and that we have fear. He even selfishly says, in your life, expect some trouble. When you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. When you frown, you bring everyone down like this. Don't worry, be happy. All right? That's, that's advice that our world says, you know what? You just need to stop it. You're worrying, just quit it. Knock it off. You're ruining everybody else's day. You're raining on our parade. We like smiling people, so stop worrying, all right? That, that is not what we have in the pages of our scripture. We, we don't have like a biblical twist on don't worry, be happy, all right? What we have is something that is fundamentally different because what we have is actually a promise. We have God's promise about his peace. So we do have commands, but we have God's promise about his peace. Listen to verse number seven, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you know where the real antidote, do you know the real correction to your anxiety and to your worry is found? It's found in the peace that comes from God. And that isn't a peace that you get to work up, right? The don't worry, be happy solution is look down in, deep inside yourself and find happiness, all right? Paul says you actually need to find peace from a source that's totally outside of yourself. In fact, it isn't even something that I can command you. It's something that happens. And this is good news. Because the good news for us this morning is that God provides peace on the basis of his grace and of his kindness. And then it's outside of you. Because if my message to you today was, do you know what? You need to work harder at not being a worrier. All you've gotten is one more law that's going to burn you down when you walk out the doors, and now for the rest of this week, you can kick yourself all the way to Grace Group and beyond. I need to stop being a worrier. I need to stop. I'm so worried because I can't get rid of this worry. No, you get in that site. No, what God's message is, I have peace for you. 
All right, so we're going we're gonna to look at the kind of peace that comes from God. God has given us commands about our worry, but he's given us promise about his peace. So what can we learn about this peace? We're just going to work our way um, word by word through verse number seven, and we're going to see four things um, about, about God's kind of peace. And the first thing is that it's his, all right? It's, it's his, it's God's. It says in verse number seven, and the peace of God. Right? That word and is not a wasted word. He didn't just throw that, throw that in there. That word and directly connects verse 7 to verse number 6. So while we have our anxiety and, and while we're supposed to be praying, something happens at that same time. So, so don't look at verse number 6 as the mechanism. It's actually directly connected to verse number 7. All right? There's something that's happening while you're praying, while you're obeying. There's something going on at the same time. And what's happening at that same time is and the peace of God will guard your hearts, all right? God's peace will guard your hearts, even in the midst of your anxiety and worry. Something happens as we, as we rely on prayer, as we rely on our God, something's happening. And what's happening is God's peace. It's his peace. There isn't anywhere else in the New Testament that uses that expression, the peace of God. There's the peace of Christ in Colossians 3.15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. But we don't see the same expression of, of God's peace. What is it? Well, it's, it's the peace. When it says the peace of God, we're talking about the same kind of peace that God has. Right? It's, it's his peace. What is, what is God's peace like? Our God is not a God that is beset with anxiety or worry. Why? Well, God does everything he pleases. In Psalm 115.3, we find out that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, on earth, in the seas, in all deeps. God is not a God who is, who is in heaven being tormented by anxiety and worry. He's marked by complete, perfect peace. He's marked by complete relational peace within the Trinity. Right? God is not a God that knows any kind of discord or lack of peace. And that's the kind of peace that he has to give. That's the kind of peace when it says that we should have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace. That's this kind of peace. It's a peace that God has himself and that he gives to us. So it says, and the peace of God. It's, it's his peace. What else can we learn about this peace? This peace is beyond human comprehension. It says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. There's two options in understanding, um, haha, in understanding that phrase. Um, one, it could mean that God's peace accomplishes more than any human ingenuity could, right? So you might have all kinds of human ways to try to get peace, but God's way surpasses that. Um, I don't think that's the best way of understanding it. I think it's actually trying to say that God's peace is beyond our ability to comprehend. You, you can't actually grasp how great God's peace is. Paul is emphasizing the uniqueness of God's peace. He's saying that his peace is more wonderful and it's even better than you can imagine. Because, brothers and sisters, I think that God is consistently greater than we think. He's cons- his peace, it's consistently greater than, than what you can imagine. Your, your best imagination of what peace is, it surpasses that. You can't even imagine how good God's peace is. It's better than that. It's that kind of thinking like in Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, right? It's that kind of thing. God is greater, infinitely greater than what we can grasp. And that's what his peace is like. It's from him. It's also 
It's also beyond human comprehension. And this peace from God is a guard. Look at this promise. This is, this is wonderful. It says the peace of God, so it's his peace. It surpasses all understanding. It's better than you can think. What will that peace do? That peace will guard your hearts and your minds. That word guard is a military term just like you think it sounds. It's used in our New Testament for actually literally guarding a city. Soldiers standing out in front, standing guard. And, and Paul uses that language, which Philippi, the Philippians would have understood very well. They had a whole Roman garrison that was stationed there to protect them. So there was Roman soldiers there all the time. They knew what it was like to have guards at their city. And Paul says, you see all those guards standing around that protect a city? God has peace for you. It will guard your heart and it will guard your mind. God's peace is like a regiment of soldiers protecting our hearts and our minds from all attacks, from all our anxieties. I think when Paul puts those two terms together, heart and mind, I think he's trying to draw attention to the, to the emotional component of our hearts. And then when he says mind to our thinking, right? So the sources of, of our anxiety, what, what causes us to have anxiety, our, our, our heart response. And I know heart is used throughout our Bibles as a general description of all of man. But when he says heart and mind, I think he's pointing our, pointing our attention to, uh, to our emotional response to life. He says that our hearts, um, they need guarded, right? Because your emotions can get out of control and they, they, they go without check in, in worry and anxiety. And, and, they're, and you're thinking about this thing and your emotions start running away with you and then you have this anxiety and worry that is sinful. And he says you're thinking, all right? A worrier, again, is somebody that knows how to think about something. And that needs to be guarded. It needs to be protected. And that's what God's peace can do. There's the same message in the Old Testament from Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. that says this, you keep him. And that's really the word for guard. You guard him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. All right? God has promises about his peace. It's peace that comes from him. It's beyond our ability to think, um, to comprehend. It's a guard for us. It's a protection for us. And one last thing for us to see about this peace, this is a peace that can only come in Christ, right? Notice how the verse ends. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think it was two weeks ago that Jeremy taught at Summerfest, and he helpfully reminded us that those three words, in Christ Jesus, are never just a throwaway in our, in our Bibles. You know, a lot of times we treat them that way. Yeah, he will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Just, it just gets thrown in there. In, in Christ Jesus. What, what does that mean, in Christ Jesus? This peace is a necessary part of our union with Christ. Within the relationship of being in Christ, there is protection and there is guarding in peace. This is exactly what in Christ, this is what our Christ has promised to his disciples when he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's the kind of peace that is in Christ. And notice even Christ himself said, this is different than what the world can give you. So the kind of peace that we're talking about, the peace that passes comprehension, the kind of peace that will guard you, that's not available to the world. It's not the kind of peace that you can just get through, um, through meds or that you can get through, um, through some, some doctor who's going to counsel you through your anxiety. This is a peace that only comes for those who are in Christ. Right? It's unique to him. 2 Thessalonians describes our Christ as the Lord of peace. And Paul says there, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. All right, our Christ is a Christ who has peace and gives peace. 
Ephesians 2, there's a discussion about the relational peace that Christ gives to both Jew and Gentile, how he knocked down the hostility between the two of them. But Christ not only dealt with the, the lack of peace between Jew and Gentile, he dealt with a lack of peace between us and God. Ephesians 2.14 says, Christ came and he preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. All right? This peace that Paul is talking about, that God is promising, it is a peace that happens in Christ. And so it's unique for Christian people. And the reality is, beloved, that if you have this kind of peace, if it marks your life, it is going to be noticed. And this kind of peace is an evangelistic peace, right? Because the kind of peace that only comes in Christ, the world will notice it. And they'll say, you know what? Your response to life circumstances, when I would be worrying and I, I mean, my guts would be wrenched, I would, I, I would have an ulcer at this point, you, you seem to have peace. How, how did that happen? Where did that come from? That's an evangelistic opportunity to say, I have peace that's in Christ. And one of the reasons you don't know this kind of peace, one of the reasons that our world is marked by every sort of anxiety, disorder, and, and responses, because they don't know the Christ of peace. But you do, and this peace can be yours. Notice that, notice that this peace doesn't even come because you got your prayer request. Did, did you notice that? And that's why this is good news. This is not about your performance. You prayed good enough to get a good answer, right? His, he tells us to pray, but then totally as if it's totally disconnected to what you actually got the answer. He doesn't say, um, so bring your requests to God, and when he answers them, then you'll have peace. He just says, bring your request to God, and God's peace will guard you. There's no mention of answer to prayer. God's peace guards us. It's separate from, from the request. So this peace is something that God does for us. And so we should be glad for this good message, that God's peace is actually greater than our worry. You don't have to reach down deep inside yourself and say, I need to stop worrying and I need to be more happy. What you need to do is go to a God who actually provides. He gives the peace that you need that will conquer your anxiety and will conquer your fear. Okay? God has commands about worry, and God has promises about it, and they teach us that his, pay, his peace is greater than our worry. I want to go to just one more passage um, before we finish the message. This is not a second sermon. Um, this is going to be an extended illustration, but I want us to actually turn there because I want you to see it. Okay, So Genesis 32. You thought that uh, we weren't going to get to the Old Testament this morning when I said Philippians, but oh, you were wrong. John said I had to keep this under an hour and, what, 40 minutes, so um, we're going to do that. Now, I want you to see Genesis 32. Um, we have good New Testament reason as we look at our Old Testaments to look, as our, look to our Old Testaments to illustrate and to teach us, right? All these things were written for our learning. And so I want to I give you, um, I think, one of the best object lessons or illustrations I could of what Philippians 4 is trying to teach us in Genesis 32, all right? I think this is the best way for me to, to illustrate what Paul is trying to tell us to do. You say, what does this look like in my life? You, what does it mean when I face life circumstances, to stop worrying, instead pray, and discover that, that God provides peace. Well, Genesis 32 is one of those passages. Genesis 32, we have Jacob, and he has already left um, his uncle Laban. He has his two wives and all of his stuff, and he's on his way back to his own country. And the reason that's a problem that Jacob's returning to his own country is the last time he was there, his older brother had said specifically that he was going to kill him. Right? So Jacob is returning to meet Esau, and so, I mean, already you, you should be able to at least sympathize with there's some seeds of anxiety and worry, all right? Jacob's returning to meet Esau, and if the last thing your brother ever said to you was, I'm going to kill you, you'd probably have some anxiety the first time you saw him too, 
All right? So he's on his way. The angels of God meet him in verse number one. In verse number three, it says, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Jacob says, I better send a message and let him know I'm coming and let's see what happens. And, uh, and what happens is verse number six. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. Oh, sweet. I love brotherly reunions. You know, you hear like the music, they're both running through the meadow, like arms outstretched. Oh, my brother, it's been so long. I'm so glad to see you. And Jacob's thinking, great, he's coming to see me. And the messenger says, and by the way, there's 400 men that are along with him. All right. Um, now, I realize we don't, we don't live in Genesis 32, but do you know what 400 men, do you know what that is? You understand what 400 men are? That's your own little army. Okay. This is not a greeting committee. This is an army coming to meet Jacob, and Jacob knows exactly what this is. Uh, Jacob's face goes from, Esau's coming to meet me, to Esau's coming to kill me, just like you promised, all right? Just in that moment, all right? Jacob is met with a circumstance, and his circumstance causes him anxiety. His circumstance causes him fear. Interestingly enough, notice that it's caused by relationship, all right? Uh, it's this relationship that's now driving Jacob to fear. Again, this 400 men, this is very clear what they're there to do, all right? This is a fighting armed party, all right? You don't need 400 people to, to have a welcome back party. And so verse number seven, what happens? Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, all right? No kidding, all right? Jacob is greatly afraid and he's distressed. So he comes up with a plan. He divides the people who are with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. All right, Jacob's like worst case scenario here. All right, maybe at least half of my family will live through this thing. All right, Jacob is anxious and he's fearful. But look what he does in verse number nine. And this I do think is instructive. There's lots about Jacob's life that is instructive in the negative sense, as in like, don't do like Jacob. This is one of those cases where I think Jacob helps us um, illustrate exactly what Paul's talking about. In verse number nine, Jacob says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. All right? I hope you notice in that prayer some of the exact same kind of things that Paul was talking about. Right? Notice that, that Jacob comes to God and he says, Oh God, you're the God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, and you're the God who said to me, go back to your country. Right? Very early on in Jacob's prayer, he's reminding God of what God had said. God, I'm not going back here just because I wanted to. I'm going back because you said I should. Right? Jacob's reminding God of what God has already verbalized to him. And that's a helpful instruction for us in our prayer, even specifically our prayer about our anxiety. Jacob's just repeating what God had to say, all right? You can do the same thing in your prayer when you come to God with your anxiety or your fear. God, you promised, you, you're the God who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And right now, I'm afraid that you will, but you said, you're the one who said it, God, all right? That's what Jacob's doing. God, you said I should go back. And notice 
notice in verse number 10, this, this mixture of humility and thankfulness. Did, did you see that in verse 10? How we said pray with thanksgiving. Did you notice that he said, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Jacob realizes like, I, I'm a wretch. I'm, my life's a wreck. I don't deserve any of your kindness. That's humility at work. And so Jacob recognizes, I don't deserve all this, but all the stuff I have, and even all the stuff he already told Esau, I've got all these oxen and donkeys and camels and children and servants. Where did he get all that stuff? Where did it all come from? Well, in this prayer, Jacob realizes, he expresses that it came from God. I, I, I don't deserve all your faithfulness, but now I've even become two whole camps. So he's thankful, all right? He knows what I have is from you. So even this prayer is infused with his thankfulness. I'm not worthy. You've shown all of this stuff to your servant. It used to be I, all I had was a stick. Right? That's the story of Jacob's life, right? I crossed this river with a stick, and I came back with this giant family with all this stuff. This is God heaping blessing on me, and I know it. All right? And then he, notice his request. He doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush. Verse number 11, this is what it means when we say pray and bring your request. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. He states his request directly, simply, and have a lot of frills to it, I want rescued. Can, can you rescue me from my brother? And he even says, I, I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid that he's going to come and attack me. All right, this is a great model for prayer. All right, you, you don't have to go to God when you're carrying your anxiety and, and worry and act like, uh, you know, I don't want to mention that I'm anxious so that God doesn't know. All right, so I'm just going to say, you know, I, generally I need some help this week with, with, the, with the bills. And what you mean is the car broke down, the refrigerator died, and I'm not sure where the groceries are coming from, but you don't ever, no, you can go to, and, and, and you say, I'm worried about this. I, I have a fear about this. God, I'm bringing this to you. God, you're the God that said you would provide, and now I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to ask you this because because I'm concerned about it. So he brings his request. And notice how Jacob finishes his prayer. He goes right back to the promises of God. All right, he finishes his prayer in verse 12. You said, there he goes again, God, you're the one that said, I will surely do you good, and I will make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob's going, okay, this, doesn't, this circumstance in life is making me worried and afraid, but I know that God's the one that said I was going to have this giant family. If I'm dead, that's not going to happen. So God's promise means that I probably should stop having fear and anxiety about this. My fear that I'm going to be destroyed doesn't match the promises of God. And, and that, beloved, is how we need to fight our own anxiety and fear. This circumstance, how does it, how, what are the promises of God? What effect does that have on it? Because if we know who our God is, and we know his good promises, then we can deal with the anxiety that unreasonably comes within us, right? Jacob didn't need to worry that Esau was going to wipe him out. Because God had made good promises to Jacob that he was going to live. And in this prayer, Jacob comes to realize it himself. All right? So I think this is a great illustration of exactly what we see in Philippians 4, which is that God's peace is greater than our worry. So we should stop worrying. We should not worry. And instead, we should pray. And then God's peace will guard us. Let me, let me end with just a couple, a couple of suggestions for application. Um, first of all, Will you consider, will you think about God's peace versus our worry? For those of you who maybe join me as worrying being a, a besetting sin for you, um, you spend a lot of time worrying about the future. Have you spent that same kind of energy thinking about how much greater God's peace is than our worry? 
don't know if you guys have ever seen these. Uh, the National Geographic has these great um, little videos that, that they do um, with different animals versus each other. You know, and they even do some hypothetical ones. If there were, if saber-toothed tigers were still alive, how would they fare against a bear? And and so they they set up these stats and you know weighing in at 100 pounds in this corner, saber-toothed tiger, and on this corner we've got the North American black bear. What's going to happen? All right. Worry claims a lot of victims, and its stats are really impressive. All right? Think about all the people that Worry has claimed. It's, it's taken out someone as great as Elijah, reduced to despairing of his own life. There were 12 disciples on a boat who lived with Jesus who were reduced to panic and fear. There were great heroes in church history, men like Luther and Spurgeon, who would be overcome with their anxiety and worry, experience what they would call the dark night of the soul. Worry can come to us at night. It can come to us during the day. It comes for big things. It comes for little things. But what's greater than worry is the peace of God. Our minds can conjure up a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry. But God's peace is beyond anything that your mind can produce. God's peace is greater. So set your mind on thinking about the greatness of God and his peace. The second suggestion I'd give to you when it comes to applying this message is to call worry sin. Right? Call worry sin. This verse told us, do not be anxious. So if you do be anxious, then we need to call that what it is. It's not, um, it's not a disorder. It's not a, it's not a mistake. It's, it's a sin. It's sin when we worry. And when we treat it as sin, then we can have the right solution. And the right solution is repentance and confession and relying on the gospel. Speaking of the gospel, do not disconnect this encouragement to you that God's peace is greater than our worry as, as some kind of moralistic pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps because it's the gospel itself that motivates us to obey any command we have in the New Testament. When, when he says, do not be anxious, if there's something inside you that says, I want to obey that command, that's because Christ has changed your heart. The gospel is motivating you to obey. The gospel is also giving you the power to obey. You can't tell someone who doesn't have Christ to stop sinning and, and have them succeed. It's only when the gospel changes our hearts that we have the capability of responding to our circumstances um, with not worry and prayer and discovering God's peace. So the gospel itself provides peace with God and the only hope we have to know a real and genuine peace. So the gospel is not disconnected from our application of this message, so don't let it be. One last thing, uh, maybe you're not a worrier, and throughout this whole message, you've been able to just check out, all right? It's like being a mom at a Father's Day message. You didn't even have to listen, all right? Uh, can I ask you to tune in just for a sec- Just as we end, you're, you're not a worrier. Can you tune back in just for a second? Can, can you help others, help your brothers and sisters? Um, you say, I'm, I'm not a worrier, and I'm just, I am, I am the don't worry, be happy guy. I just go through life, and I smile at everything, and I never have a problem, and, and I, I'm Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky. Can you help others by, by not calling them to have your own personality and, and not say, you know, the solution to your worry, you just need to become much more chipper. Like if you had just become a morning person like me, you'd be great. But don't, don't call people to your own personality and, and, and your own likeness. Show people why it is that you actually have genuine joy and happiness. Show them that's because you trust God. You know his promises. Um, point other people, people who struggle with worry, not, not to a personality deficiency, but to a God that has made you the way you are. Okay? Our, our solution to our worry and our anxiety is not in ourselves. It's actually in the peace that God has to give. Right? God's peace, it's greater than our worry. So let's pray to him.